So what's it all about then? I've been asking myself this question many times in this class, and when I did, you know, initially many of the readings that you guys are, are doing as part of this class. And here's a piece that makes me think about that question in a new way, from a new frame. This is Robin West's Jurisprudence and Gender. What is it all about? What are we doing when we do law? What are we trying to do? These are the basic questions we've been trying to answer. You know, what, what is the law that we have? How does it actually work in people's lives? Why is it that way? Should it be different? This piece, hopefully, you know, even if you don't agree with all parts of it, or, you know, certainly no one does, everyone thinks about it differently, but maybe that's the point. We think about these things really differently, and it can be super hard to try to understand that our minds work differently, that we, that we perceive things differently, that we understand and have purposes that are different than other people. So is that essentially true? Is a human being physically and mentally, as we'll see, separate from all other humans, not essentially connected? Hmm. That is the separation thesis, the one that Robin West says is essentially masculine. Okay. Well, let's talk about this piece, and let's try to see things from different points of view. For some of you, you may read this and say, yeah, that's what's always bothered me about, about law and the way legal argument happens. I, I just am wired up differently. I just see things differently. And others of you may be thinking, what, what is she talking about? Well, that's a weird way of looking at law. What is, she, what is she talking about? Okay, let's cover some of these ideas. The separation thesis that human beings are, in fact, physically separate from one another, not essentially connected. This thesis has widespread agreement, West argues, from the right to the left, from Robert Nozick, the libertarian philosopher who argued for a very minimal state, so long as there was a fair starting point and opportunities for free exchanges. His basic moral principle was that, quote, there are individuals with separate lives. Roberto Unger, one of the key critical legal theorists, he said that consciousness itself was awareness of our separation, our separateness. Robin West's basic argument is that the separation thesis is, quote, essentially and irretrievably masculine. Why? Because women are physically connected to other beings, to other human beings, and they are defined by that connection. Where does this happen? What, how are they physically connected in a way that, that men are not? Well, she argues through the act of sexuality, through menstruation, which is physically symbolic of pregnancy's potential, Pregnancy itself is a physical connection to another being. And then post-pregnancy in the act of breastfeeding and nurturing. Okay, now keep your wits about you. What she's arguing here is that this is law's starting point. The starting point for the way that everyone seems to think about law, from the left to the right, is based on this idea of separation. It's, it's our you know, basic assumption. But if that's wrong... If that assumption is wrong for an entire class of people, half the world, then maybe it explains why the law itself is wrong for half the world or for all of us. And to do this, she's going to observe two basic divides in masculine jurisprudence between liberal legalism and critical legal theory and in feminism between two other frames, radical feminist theory and what she calls cultural feminism. Okay, let's get started with the masculine jurisprudence and the divide between the crits and the liberals. Now, of course, we're not talking about liberals as they were derided by Republicans beginning in the 1980s. This is not 
just, or at least it's not identical to cultural liberalism. This is economic liberalism. Might think of the normative law and economists, people who believe in free exchange, freedom of autonomy, all that, right? So that's on one side and the crits are on the other. The liberal description is that our separation equals our freedom and our autonomy, that we are in fact separate. Because we start separate, we start kind of equally free. The liberals' commitment to the non-intervention of the state, the state staying out of it. Remember how Hale argued against Carver, this guy Carver, who was representative of the idea that the state should stay out and let people order their own affairs to maximize their freedom? Well, that that thesis of non-intervention, that belief in non-intervention, follows from a respect for autonomy, which itself, West argues, follows from the separation thesis. Now, the downside of the experience of separation from one another is vulnerability. This is the fact that, you know, that, that we are, in fact, separate beings means that we're subject to harm by other separate humans. And so conflict arises from the fact of separation. This isn't the first time that we've seen this. Even with H.L.A. Hart's concept of law, he made an argument in terms of the kind of minimum content of natural law. Any such law would be based on the idea of relative equality of human beings, right? That, you know, no one human is like so super strong they could fight off like all other humans, right? That relative equality means that we are vulnerable to one another. Now, the critical legal studies description is a little bit different, but still, separation is in our minds prior to the collective, right? We think of ourselves as separate before we think about the collective, but this fact entails a longing for connection and community. The fact that we're separate drives us to want to make connections. And so the problem for the law to solve, it's keeping us from the dread of alienation caused by our separateness. Whereas liberalism sees the threat as the potential for another to annihilate you, the crit sees the problem as isolation to be overcome. Now, these are just two different ways of looking at the world, united by their belief in the separation thesis that we are separate. But maybe you should ask yourself whether you think there's something basic, psychologically or otherwise, that distinguishes people we might call libertarian from those who, I don't know, aren't exactly collectivists, but who are more comfortable with kind of collective action. Anyway, in sum, if you look on page 13 of this article, you get one of these great two-by-two boxes featuring liberalism versus critical legal studies on one axis and value versus harm on the other, generating these kind of four categories of autonomy and community and annihilation and alienation. Now, I'll leave it to you to look at that. Okay, let's talk about feminism. Here, West observes two different kinds of feminism. I know we're making lots of distinctions in this class, but that's how you can see further, right? There's not just one idea, there are several. And if we're careful enough, we can see them. It helps us understand why we're having this conflict. Conflict is not just something I feel, it's not just an emotion, but now I can kind of see why people are talking past one another, or which ideas are conflicting. Well, what's the distinction here? It's between, on the one hand, what she calls cultural feminism, and on the other hand, what she calls radical feminism. The important point here is that both of these two views proceed by denying the separation thesis, and instead embracing what she calls the connection thesis, rather than starting by believing that women, like men, exist in an initial state of separateness Women have an omnipresent potential for physical connection with other human life. The existential state of women is connection. If women are fundamentally different from men in terms of their default state, 
What does that mean for equality? How do we achieve it? Well, for the cultural feminist, the connection thesis implies that law should value intimacy, nurturing, and the ethics of care. For the radical feminist, the truth of the connection thesis, that women in fact are indelibly connected to the lives of others, creates a longing for separateness, a longing to escape that default state, and a fear of invasion and lack of integrity. Do you already see it? This is really beautiful. The radical feminist is the mirror image of the crit. The cultural feminist and the liberal, they both have a description about valuing what they start with, right? The liberal wants to protect that zone of autonomy, to protect his separateness. The cultural feminist, she wants to protect her connection. The crit and the radical both describe the dread of kind of failing to escape their default state, their initial nature. Now, why should we believe the connection thesis? Why should we believe that men and women are essentially different in this way? Or are they even essentially different in this way? And here we don't find, you know, anything like a strictly scientific biological explanation of the difference. We see some hints of kind of evolutionary thinking and cultural observations. Importantly for West's argument, though, women in fact do, around the world and within our own culture, raise children. Increasingly, men do also. But West argues that the physical act of childbearing leads to a disinclination of abandonment. And, and that sounds more materialist, right? More, more based in, you know, the facts of the world and substance. It's an uncomfortable fit, though, with a feminist movement which overall rests on an idea of formal equality and the denial of any essential differences between men and women. But maybe this fact of child-rearing and the differences in the way that stereotypical men and women approach intimacy and caregiving, maybe it's all culturally constructed. I guess for Wes, that doesn't really matter. It is a fact. And the male perspective on that fact is what has driven the evolution of our law. Now, I'm not going to be able to do it justice here in this podcast, but maybe when you read the article and you see things from the point of view of the author, which is, after all, the, the highest aspiration of any author is help, to help you see things through, through their mind, through their eyes. Maybe you men can appreciate better through West's eyes the different perspective that at least many women have, whether that's essential or not. And for you women... Maybe as you read this, you experience, like West herself did, she said, the shocking recognition that this really does capture how I feel, and I hadn't recognized that before. Now, whatever its source, women's relationship with the other is, for cultural feminists, West argues, one of dramatic inequality. So, for example, with respect to the fetus growing inside of a woman, that physical connection with someone who is not her is a connection between people who are not equal in any sense. To the extent that that fetus is interfering with the woman's self, with her life plans, that fetus is not the aggressor in the same sense that the liberal male is concerned about an aggressor. The aggressor in the liberal male's world is unequal, an equal who could annihilate him. Men respond to the vulnerability created by our relative equality by using the state to support our physical integrity. Women, the cultural feminists say, respond to that inequality by fostering an ethic of nurturing and care. The liberal male, again, seeks to support autonomy, the male default state. The cultural feminist seeks to support nurturing and care. 
women's default state. And again, that's not a, you know, it sounds so stereotypical. And, and here, of course, I am just summarizing West's summary of cultural feminism, but that is not the view of the radical feminists who, like the crits, view these conditions, you know, being chained to our default state as the cause of our suffering. So for the radical, pregnancy itself is an assault on a woman's well-being. It's a problem to be solved. It's that connection that the woman wants to escape from in the same way that for the critical theorist male, it's our isolation that we are trying to overcome. The radical also observes that our dominant culture tries to kind of keep us within our default states. It tries to condemn men who seek intimacy, who seek to overcome the truth of the separation thesis. And it seeks to condemn women who seek to overcome the truth of the connection thesis, who seek separateness. Okay, now that we've gotten the divide between the masculine perspectives that are the perspectives on the law, the dominant perspectives on the law, out on the table, and two perspectives on feminism out on the table, and we've seen the connections between those, why, we might ask, is there a distinction between the official story of the law and the subjective accounts of women? What accounts for this gap between the rule of law and the subjective lives that women lead? West looks at feminist accounts of heterosexual sex. Some radical feminists cast heterosexual sex as inherently kind of collaborative with patriarchy. Andrea Dworkin is a big example here. For Dworkin, it means that even seemingly voluntary sex is in fact based on fears that the lack of collaboration with men will lead to violence. West disagrees. She says that freely chosen intimacy can be empowering, even on kind of a separation thesis or liberal grounds. And this notion of seemingly voluntary heterosexual sex is inherently collaborative just fails to explain the phenomenon that women experience. She agrees that society generally compels this kind of collaboration by making, and you have to remember here, we're talking about 1988, by making maybe even married heterosexual sex the norm, and that there is a subtle kind of compulsion to engage in that kind of intimacy. But West just denies that intimate acts are necessarily of this kind. Maybe we need to destroy the institutions creating this kind of coercion, but not the acts of sex and motherhood themselves, which could be, possibly be, freely chosen, truly voluntary, and enriching. Okay, there are other arguments, and you saw them in the paper, but I want to focus on the one that she attributes to Duncan Kennedy. Autonomy and our need for community are not just kind of attitudes that divide us as people, like some people are on one side and some are on another, but they are deep contradictions within ourselves. And our legal ideology reflects this deep internal individual contradiction. And so too, West says, women's valuation is divided between both intimacy and self-liberation. These are contradictory inclinations and indeed parts of a woman herself. And so all four boxes of the legal theory feminist world are true in a way. They're true of our individual experiences. The contradiction here between the autonomy-seeking self and the need for community self is not one of logic, but, West says, of our lived experience. This is true of sex itself, revising Dworkin here, that although there is an aspect of collaboration and subsuming, there's also autonomy in it. 
But unlike the fundamental male contradiction, women's subjective experiences of this contradiction are less visible because they have fewer outlets. Maybe that's changing. Maybe that has changed. Maybe you find this part less compelling now. Let's look at the last section on feminist jurisprudence and how all of this applies to our law. The basic idea is that the rule of law values autonomy. It values the underlying truth of the separation thesis or the male default state. This has the consequence of making women worse off because their default state is connection. But the law doesn't see connection as anything other than something which is kind of freely chosen, a freely chosen departure from the default state. Those activities which manifest connection, like caregiving, housekeeping, having children, those are not compensated because they're freely chosen departures. And separation is not seen as a harm to be protected against. Even rape, West argues, is only understood as a harm when it's accompanied by violence. Thus, law has some ambivalence regarding marital rape. That was an issue. There's no adequate account in the law of rape of the subjective contradiction in women's lives. Similarly, the law has a hard time comprehending abortion and pregnancy. Fetal invasion is not the kind of annihilation of oneself that the male-dominated understanding of law was meant to protect against. The rule of law, the one which emerged from the separation thesis, understands the need to protect ourselves against equals. But the fetus is not an equal. The fetus doesn't come to kill the woman. Rather, the fetus represents a loss of control, a loss of control over oneself. That's not the kind of harm that the male rule of law understands. In some, she argues that our law is set up and argued around the male contradiction, our default state of separateness and our desire for connection, but fear of aggression and unwanted connection. And this has a reason, the domination by men of the resort to law in the making of law. All right, so what to do? Well, West describes two different approaches to legal theory here into which we would want to inject the truth of the connection thesis for women. So one is a so-called narrative or phenomenological legal theory. The other is interpretivist. So the narrative or phenomenological legal theory describes law and society, but then moves to a story of how humans have ever agreed to it or what it feels like to be the subject of that law. So for this, think about stories of natural law involving a state of nature. So law, law is the way it is because in a state of nature, blah, blah, blah. Or even Fuller's story concerning Rex. These are stories we tell about humans' experience of being among one another and having rules among one another that say, yeah, it's, it makes sense that the law is that way because this is a story of how humans are. Whereas interpretivist theories are theories that look at the body of legal materials to identify what the law is and what our purposes are. In a way, it's the reverse of the narrative theory. It's the story of law from the law's point of view rather than from the human's point of view. Now, liberals and crits can adopt either approach, and, and the chart on page 63 of the article is really informative on this. It kind of is an atlas of where different thinkers are. If we start with the narrative theory, well, let's think about how a liberal would tell the story or a crit would tell the story. From the feminist perspective, does it matter? In either case, whether we tell the Hobbesian story of the state of nature that came before the rule of law and justifies it in terms of fear of annihilation and vulnerability of one's autonomy, or whether we tell the critical story about fearing isolation and desiring attachment, 
Both are generalizations of the male story about male fears. And here West says the feminist project should be to flood the market with stories that are true of women, showing that intimacy should be valued, protecting and compensating nurturing labor. But it's also about harms. We need stories showing the subjective harm, say, of date rape. Now, hasn't that been happening more recently? Are these kinds of stories changing minds, changing perspectives on what counts as a harm, on what counts as a violation? Now, the interpretive critique works a little bit differently. Here we, again, instead of thinking about a story and thinking about what that, mean, what that story means for our law, we look at the law itself and we deduce from it what it values and what it's missing. And when we look at the law, we see that it doesn't provide for compensation for housework or other activities that are traditionally performed by women. We look at its views on abortion and pornography. And what these laws are telling women, at least in 1988, arguably still today, is that the law is not made for us, West says. Now fast forward 20 years, and Martha Nussbaum now writing a retrospective, looking back at this article. She has a lot of praise and a number of critiques, and for this podcast, I'm only going to focus on the major one. Physical separation is not the full story of what differentiates one individual from another. That we have separate mental lives is critical. That what goes on in my mind is, you know, not immediately accessible to you without communication. As Nussbaum says, all attempts to grasp the subjective experience of another are interpretations, not mergers. But in addition to the separation thesis being about more than physicality, the connection thesis runs into some problems. Our bodies may, in sexuality, interpenetrate, but they never really merge. Even pregnancy. In many ways, a pregnant mother is still physically separate from the fetus. The mom could be doing very poorly, for example, but the fetus could be thriving and vice versa. And it's even more obvious that the mental connection with this fetus inside of a woman has to be quite weak because the mental life of a fetus is pretty much unknowable. But even our everyday interactions with our partners and our children, well, their mental lives can be inaccessible as well. She observes that if you think you know on account of intimacy what your child or partner is thinking, you're probably a bad parent or a bad partner. Nussbaum's most important criticism, though, is that West wrongly identified liberal legal theory as arising from a factual commitment to the separation thesis. In other words, the feminist critique of the law is that it's based on a factual premise that applies only to males. Well, Nussbaum doesn't think so. Nussbaum thinks that liberalism is based on certain normative commitments, including, quote, the assumption of the equal worth of persons and the assumption that politics ought to show equal respect to persons. So for Nussbaum, these are things that we believe, but that cannot really be demonstrated as following from facts. Either we believe people have equal worth or we don't. But there's no fact of the world which can show us the truth of that thing. It's a normative commitment. If that's the case, then what explains liberalism's lack of commitment to female equality, to feminism? And here, instead of suggesting that that lack of concern arises from a factual thesis about separation, Nussbaum says there are two reasons. One is just plain inconsistency. Many male legal philosophers just don't consider women to be beings of equal worth. And thus, there's no conflict with a normative theory saying that everyone should be treated equally. 
The second is taking kind of an overly formal approach. Looking at equality as an instance of equal treatment, and there I mean an instance, ignoring effects in time or the fact that the two situations may have come from very different starting points. An example is the liberals' opposition to affirmative action, that what matters is not so much that two entities have equality in a broad sense, but that they are treated moment by moment on an equal basis, regardless of where they started, regardless of other barriers that may exist in other contexts. All right, I think that's enough for now. And there's so much here. And I've only skimmed the surface, really, but I hope I've outlined some of the major ideas in this piece. And I hope it's really got you thinking. Kind of another question I want to ask you, though. When we think about this connection thesis and the separation thesis, do you think we're connected to or separate from our future selves? Do you believe in the separation thesis? What does it mean? What does it imply about being human that we are physically separated from one another? Are we really? All right. Talk to you soon.